Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, and is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Salve Pharmaceuticals, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a follow-up to our November 2008 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review topic, Emerging Pathogens in Cystic Fibrosis. Our guests are Dr. Michael Boyle and Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program. This activity has been developed for clinicians, including physicians, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with issues related to cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the November 2008 podcast link. At the conclusion of this audio activity, participants should be able to identify emerging pathogens in cystic fibrosis, describe the role of infection control and potential treatments in CF patients with MRSA, and explain the risk factors associated with the development of multiple antibiotic-resistant pseudomonas infection in CF. I'm Bob Busker, editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line we have with us are November Issues authors. Dr. Michael Boyle is Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook is a clinical fellow, also with the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Dazenbrook, Dr. Boyle, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be here. Both guests have disclosed that they have no relationships with commercial supporters. The presentation today will not include discussion of off-label product uses, with the exception of the use of inhaled amicacin for the treatment of mycobacterium abscessus. Dr. Boyle, Dr. Dazenbrook, our topic is emerging pathogens in cystic fibrosis. And now, Dr. Boyle, in the newsletter, you cite the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's patient registry. Tell us a little more about this registry, if you would, uh, and recap for us the current key microbiologic trends. Well, Bob, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's patient registry is data from all around the United States where certified CF centers get yearly data and then contribute that to a main collection of data. It has about 25,000 patients in it, about half of which are children and half of which are adults, all with cystic fibrosis. Now, the data for microbiology is based on respiratory cultures that are collected each year at these centers. The recommendations from the CF Foundation is that at least one culture is collected per patient each year, although most centers do cultures quarterly, which gives us a large amount of information to be able to look at microbiologic trends. The summary data from 2007 was just released last week at the North American Cystic Fibrosis Meetings, and there are several key trends which emerge when you look at these data. As usual, Pseudomonas aeruginosa continues to be the most important cystic fibrosis pathogen by far. About 55% of individuals with CF in the United States are infected with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and about 80% of all patients with CF are infected with Pseudomonas by the age of 25. Now, we talk about this trend more in the uh, the newsletter, particularly the evidence that the acquisition of pseudomonas may be occurring later than it used to. The other trend that is very evident is this rapid rise in prevalence of MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus. 
And we're going to talk some more uh, later on about the clinical implications of this rise in prevalence of MRSA. But I think there's a couple of key facts that are worth knowing. First of all, in, in this past year, over 20%, 21% of all individuals with cystic fibrosis were infected with MRSA. This is an increase even from last year, because in 2006, uh, 18.9% of patients were infected with MRSA. And if you look back further, it's a pretty dramatic rise. Only 9% of patients were infected in 2002. Uh, Pseudomonas and MRSA, now these are pathogens you focused on in the newsletter. Are there other pathogens of particular importance? Absolutely. Haemophilus, influenza, methicillin-sensitive staph aureus are common CF pathogens that continue to be of importance, particularly in children with cystic fibrosis. But perhaps of more interest are some of the uh, unusual pathogens that are developing. Stenotrophomonas multifilia, a well-known CF pathogen, which has a prevalence of about 12% uh, infection in the registry, continues to be an issue. I guess the one good news about this is that most evidence suggests that stenotrophomonas does not have a large effect on clinical outcomes. Another pathogen of interest is Acromobacter xylosoxidans, which is infecting about 6% of individuals with CF. Now, this was previously called alkaligenes, although it's better known now as Acromobacter. I think the reason we're going to be paying more attention to this is that there's evidence mounting that Acromobacter may have some influence on clinical outcomes. Certainly, this has been our own experience, and we're going to talk a little bit more later about some presentations at the North American CF meetings, which suggest it may impact clinical outcomes in CF. And then finally, I should mention Burkholderia cepacea complex. This does not include Burkholderia gladioli. The prevalence of Burkholderia cepacea complex is 2.9% this past year, which is actually a little lower than in years past. But because it can have such a negative clinical impact uh, in CF, particularly because of genome of R3, uh, Burkholderia sinocepacea, it's something that gets our attention. And then one of the uh, non-bacteria, non-tuberculous mycobacteria, is another pathogen that everyone in the CF is keeping an eye on. The registry reports that 2% of individuals were treated for non-tuberculous mycobacteria last year, although certainly the number of individuals with non-tuberculous mycobacteria in their cultures is higher than that. The most common uh, non-tuberculous mycobacteria is called Mycobacterium avium intracellulari complex, or MAC, and it continues to be the most common of the non-tuberculous mycobacterias, although Mycobacterium abscessus is receiving increasing attention in clinical circles both because of increasing prevalence and because we know it's very difficult to eradicate and is often resistant to typical anti-tuberculous drugs. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation's patient registry, are there any specific limitations to this data in regards to drawing conclusions about microbiologic trends in CF? Well, that's a good question, actually, because there are some limitations. I think, first of all, we have to remember that the registry only includes U.S. data. We can't monitor world trends, uh, international trends in microbiology and CF from this database. Europe and Australia are currently working on registries which would allow us to identify some of these international trends. And I think that'll be particularly interesting for CF caregivers because we know there's some differences in treatment approach in different countries. And this might help us learn a little bit more about the effect of that on microbiologic trends. Second of all, you know, we're, we're limited in some ways by the accuracy of each individual center's microbiology lab. When a center reports that they do not have any Burkholderia cepacea complex or MRSA in their patients, 
it's unclear if there really are no infections in their patients or perhaps their lab is just not detecting it. Uh, now, Lisa Seaman from Columbia has been working with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and centers from around the country to standardize their CF microbiology practices, and I think this has been helping to increase the confidence that we have in these uh, data. And then finally, we have to remember that the registry has limited information about some of the molecular characteristics of the, uh, the pathogens. And the reason this is important is sometimes those molecular characteristics can have strong influence on their clinical impact. For example, we know that specific genomic variants within the B. sapatia complex and certain MEK types and PVL status in MRSA can influence clinical presentation. The prevalence of MRSA, as you discussed in the newsletter, is increasing markedly. Uh, Dr. Dazenbrook, you recently published a study suggesting that MRSA infection increases the rate of lung function decline in children and adolescents with CF. But you also state that there is insufficient evidence to recommend immediate antibiotic treatment for all patients who acquire MRSA. Now, based on those statements, what approach would you recommend that a clinician take for a CF patient with a new MRSA infection? Our study suggests that we need to pay more attention to MRSA and really highlights the importance of conducting studies to determine the best treatment practices for MRSA and cystic fibrosis patients. Unfortunately, we don't have all the answers just yet. Until that time, our approach to MRSA is the following. Two types of patients really present to us with MRSA in their respiratory tract. Number one, patients who are having an acute pulmonary exacerbation. And then second, patients who are in for a routine follow-up, their cystic fibrosis is stable, and we recover MRSA in their culture. So the approach to patients with an acute exacerbation is that we feel that it's reasonable to treat MRSA in this situation, especially if the MRSA isolate is the only microbe growing in the uh, culture. Now, what's a little bit more difficult is if you have a polymicrobial culture, such as MRSA and Pseudomonas. You know, it may be reasonable and you may consider treating the other pathogens first, and then if the patient doesn't respond, consider adding on therapy for MRSA at that time. Right now, we use the antibiotic sensitivities to guide our therapy. However, there are not any data suggesting that the molecular characteristics of the MRSA, such as hospital-acquired or community-acquired, should influence your treatment approach. One particular subset of patients uh, that should be noted are those with a particularly bad exacerbation, uh, focal pulmonary infiltrate, or perhaps a cavitary lesion on uh, imaging, a large drop in FEV1, and a clindamycin-sensitive MRSA isolate uh, should be considered as potentially having a PVL-positive MRSA. Now, in those with chronic stable cystic fibrosis who you recover an MRSA isolate in the uh, culture, I think it's important to note that a third of those patients will not culture MRSA again. So what we will do is bring these patients back to the clinic four to six weeks later and repeat a uh, culture. If MRSA is still present, uh, then we'll consider eradication therapy at that time. But definitely, this is an area that needs more study to determine the risks and benefits of treatment in this population. While we wait for those studies to provide definitive guidance for the treatment of MRSA and cystic fibrosis, what is there in the literature that provides a rationale for the current MRSA treatment paradigm? 
Well, I think the experience that we've seen so far with Pseudomonas is a good template to base our treatment for MRSA on, especially in Europe, where evidence is mounting that eradication strategies for Pseudomonas have been helpful. Once a pathogen in cystic fibrosis has become established in the respiratory tract, it definitely becomes much more difficult to eradicate. In addition, you know, our study has shown that those with persistent and multiple MRSA cultures had larger FEV1 drops than those with transient infection, only one or two cultures. So again, targeting those with persistent MRSA is probably a good group to consider treatment for. In the literature review, one of the studies that we looked at out of St. Louis, uh, Dr. Eliza and colleagues, in the PVL positive and negative MRSA patients, so basically just the MRSA group, both groups had large drops in FEV1 when compared to the maximal value in the year prior. And interestingly, when they treated those patients, despite the severe acute changes in pulmonary function, they did return to normal after treatment. Again, suggesting that perhaps treatment of the MRSA can result in normalization of the lung function. In deciding which antibiotics to choose, we follow the antibiogram that's given from the uh, culture. And in the Glickman study from Chicago and Dallas, in their MRSA isolates, they had no resistance to Bactrim, linazolid, or vancomycin. Therefore, we try and do initial treatment with uh, oral antibiotics if possible. The potential downsides to uh, unnecessary therapy are always kept in mind, and especially in that group where we're concerned that it may resolve on its own up to one-third of the time. That so really highlights the importance of the need for more studies that really will help us identify factors which predict persistent MRSA infection help us identify the best treatment strategies uh, to eradicate infection, and then finally demonstrate that treatment or eradication actually improves clinical outcomes. Since at this time we really don't have a best treatment practice for CF patients with MRSA, what can you recommend to the clinician to aid in preventing initial infection? Dr. Dazenbrook? Absolutely. Strict infection control is of utmost importance. Just like across all disciplines of medicine, prevention is always your best bet. As Dr. Boyle talked about earlier, the prevalence of MRSA is up. But if you take a closer look at the data, there's a large amount of variability among the uh, centers. MRSA prevalence varies anywhere from 5% to 45%. And what we don't know for sure, but what we're concerned about, is that there may be spread of MRSA within the actual CF centers. And there have been studies in both CF and non-CF patients that have documented that MRSA can be spread from person to person. In addition, the different strains of MRSA, community-associated and hospital-associated, community-associated has been increasing in prevalence recently. This is concerning because of the concern that community-acquired MRSA is capable of rapid spread among strains of staph. However, currently the infection control recommendations for patients with CF to prevent patient-to-patient -patient transmission include both standard and contact precautions as are recommended for multiple antibiotic-resistant pseudomonas as well as B. cepatia complex. Now, most hospitals already have in place a situation to deal with the inpatient 
MRSA-positive patients, and the infection control policies are quite strict. What we would like to focus on is seeing a CF patient in the ambulatory clinic where maybe the recommendations or policies are not as strict. Now, reviewing the infection control guidelines, there's really three simple things that can be done to improve or augment what's already being done in the clinic. The first for both patients and practitioners is the simple reminder of the importance of hand hygiene. What's really important is having the availability of waterless alcohol-based hand rubs before and after contact with patients and especially after contact with respiratory secretions. Patients are encouraged to cough into a tissue and immediately discard that tissue into a covered garbage can or a toilet uh, and then perform hand hygiene afterwards. All CF patients are aware of the three-foot rule and we remind them uh, of that in a clinic and that helps prevent the spread of MRSA uh, as well. And then finally, avoiding the use of shared items in clinic, especially in the waiting rooms, such as toys for patients or uh, computer keyboards. Now, for practitioners, the importance of gowning and gloving in clinic is strongly recommended in the uh, guidelines, as well as disinfecting the uh, rooms with antimicrobial wipes between cystic fibrosis patients. So, for example, the cavicide wipes can be used on all the flat horizontal surfaces in the rooms. It takes about 30 seconds to a minute, and then you allow a minute for drying time. And those are just three simple things that can be done to improve the infection control in the ambulatory setting. And we'll return in just a moment with Drs. Michael Boyle and Elliot Dazenbrook from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians, by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses, and by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine for Pharmacists. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. 
Welcome back to our November 2008 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, and I'm with Drs. Michael Boyle and Elliot Dazenbrook from the Johns Hopkins Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center. We've been discussing emerging pathogens in cystic fibrosis. I want to turn now to an area of particular interest and concern, and that's about the effect of the Panton-Valentin leukocidin gene in MRSA infection. Uh, Dr. Tazenbrook, tell us more about PVL, if you would, please. PVL is a cytotoxin that causes leukocyte destruction and tissue necrosis and has been associated with necrotizing pneumonias and soft tissue infections. Now, while there's a strong epidemiologic link between PVL and community-associated MRSA, its role is controversial in both CF and non-CF patients. For example, the presence of PVL gene has been clearly demonstrated to be associated with some severe cases of MRSA pulmonary infections, but other times the presence of PVL and MRSA may not lead to a more severe infection. The two studies that we reviewed in the uh, newsletter had conflicting results about the importance of PVL infection in cystic fibrosis. The ELISA and colleagues uh, study from St. Louis found PVL to be associated with worse lung function, increasing white blood cell counts, and pulmonary exacerbations. On the other hand, Dr. Glickman and colleagues found no difference between surveillance and exacerbation cultures and the proportion of PVL-positive MRSA uh, patients, suggesting that PVL did not lead to a worse clinical course. In addition, other CF populations uh, have found all of their community-acquired MRSA to be negative for the PVL gene. Our experience has certainly been that not all patients with the PVL gene uh, have a stormy clinical course. Now, while further studies are ongoing, we would like to reinforce that PVL has the potential to be associated with worse infections. Patients present with cavitary pneumonias or with a clinical picture as described in the ELISA study, PVL should certainly be kept in mind. Hopefully in the future, PVL-specific treatment strategies will become available. I want to change topics now. And uh, Dr. Boyle, I want to go back to something you previously mentioned, multiple antibiotic-resistant pseudomonas, or MARPA. How much of a problem has this become in CF? And address, if you would, how does it affect caregivers? Well, Bob, antibiotic resistance is always a concern for CF caregivers. It's something that we deal with every day and, you know, are keep an eye on. In many ways, I think it's actually a sign of success. Our, our patients are living longer. They're getting more courses of IV antibiotics. And so we can't be too upset about it. The truth is we don't have uh, perfectly accurate data about the effect of MARPA. Part of that is because the definition of MARPA is somewhat complicated. Remember that we talked about in the newsletter that the definition of MARPA currently is pseudomonas that's resistant to two of the three anti-pseudomonal antibiotic classes, that is fluoroquinolones, aminoglycosides, and the beta-lactams. It's just recently that the CF registry has been collecting accurate data on this. But it's clear that this MARPA is a big issue. The prevalence now is up to about 18%, so that 18% of all CF patients grew out a very resistant pseudomonas culture during the 2007 year. This is up from 16% last year, and although we don't have perfectly accurate data, certainly dramatically up from 10 years ago. It's also more prevalent in adults who have had more IV antibiotics and more hospital stays. But I guess the real question is, how does it affect us as caregivers? Certainly, we'd all like to have our patients have very sensitive pseudomonas. 
But I think one of the key things in this is there's a clear consensus that aggressive treatment is beneficial, that although we're worried about resistant pseudomonas and its increased prevalence, this should not sway us from being aggressive with treatment because we know that it helps improve pulmonary outcomes when we're aggressive. Now, we reviewed a paper in the literature review by uh, Dr. Merlo and colleagues who specifically tried to identify the risk factors for developing resistant pseudomonas. And some of those things weren't surprising. So frequent IV antibiotic use, frequent hospitalizations were both independent risk factors for acquisition of MARPA. But also, and, and probably a little more surprisingly, CF-related diabetes was an independent risk factor for MARPA. And also prolonged use of inhaled antibiotics was seen as an independent risk factors for MARPA. Finally, it turns out that being cared for at a center in the highest quartile for MARPA infection is in itself an independent risk factor for getting resistant pseudomonas infection. Now, whether this is due to just very aggressive care at the centers with antibiotics or whether or not they have labs that are particularly good at detecting MARPA, we're not sure, but at least raises the concern about the possibility of spread of resistant pseudomonas between patients and highlights how important it is to follow through on those recommendations on infection control that Dr. Dazenbrook talked about earlier. I think one of the little subpoints when you look at the MARPA data is that 26% of patients have MARPA on their first pseudomonas acquisition, which makes us somewhat concerned that they're getting exposed to a more resistant pseudomonas before they've had all these recurrent courses of IV antibiotics. But I think, again, the most important thing is treat the patient aggressively. Certainly, we'd like to have sensitive organisms, but I think if we're aggressive, practice good infection control, and hopefully as we develop new antibiotics, we'll really be able to provide our patients the best care. Dr. Boyle, another pathogen you mentioned earlier, a type of non-tuberculous mycobacteria, uh, specifically Mycobacterium abscessus. Uh, tell us a little more about this pathogen, please. This is a pathogen that CF caregivers are seeing more of, unfortunately. It's a subset of the non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Certainly, Mycobacterium avium intercellulare, or MAC, is still the most common by far of the non-tuberculous mycobacteria. But the Mycobacterium abscessus is receiving quite a bit of attention not only because increasing prevalence, but also because it's such a challenge to treat. The typical treatment for it is not uh, using many of the uh, standard uh, tuberculous medications. As a matter of fact, it tends to be most sensitive to amikacin and to something like cefoxetin and requires prolonged treatment. But once it's established, it can be very hard to eradicate. As a matter of fact, the number of reports of true eradication is a fairly small number. What we usually recommend for this organism is, as soon as it's detected, to try initially to eradicate it with treatment for at least a year after the patient becomes culture negative. Frequently, however, even with this aggressive treatment, abscessus is hard to eradicate and requires long-term suppressive therapy, oftentimes with inhaled amikacin, oral azithromycin, or other uh, antibiotics. Uh, one last question, Dr. Boyle. Uh, and again, something you mentioned earlier in this discussion. Acromobacter. You stated that you think CF caregivers will be hearing more about this pathogen in the upcoming years. Uh, what makes you say that? Why? Well, Acromobacter xylozoxidans is a gram-negative organism that's been present on the CF microbiology scene for a couple of years, but is definitely increasing in prevalence and is a challenge to treat. It was previously known, or its other name is Alcaligenes xylozoxidans, although most people are making the switch to calling it Acromobacter. 
Now, its prevalence in 2007 in the U.S. registry was 6%. But if you look closely, some centers report a prevalence as high as 15% of their patients being infected with this organism. And adults tend to have higher infection rates than children. Acromobacter is often very resistant to many of the anti-pseudomonal antibiotics that we commonly use, particularly aminoglycosides, one of our favorite anti-pseudomonals. And that frequently we need to think about other antibiotics such as meropenem or piperacillin to treat this organism. So the specific reason I think that there is going to be an increase in attention paid to Acromobacter in the upcoming years is because of some recent evidence presented at the North American Cystic Fibrosis meetings. There was actually two large studies presented there, both in abstract form, addressing the role of Acromobacter. Both found it to be associated with more advanced lung disease and an increase in antibiotic requirements. The first study was from a research group at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania. What they did was they studied the CF registry between 1996 and 2004. This was a time period when Acromobacter prevalence actually tripled. They found that an initial effect of Acromobacter on FEV1 and need for IV antibiotics occurred in that first year. So patients tended to do worse, although it's unclear right now whether or not that effect persists over time. The other study was from a group of investigators at the University of North Carolina. Rather than looking at the entire registry, they looked specifically at their own center's experience. They have a very large center. At their center, about 15% of their patients had grown out acromobacter, and they found a clear association with acromobacter infection and a decline in FEV1, as well as an increased risk for need of lung transplantation. This would mirror the experience at our own center, where we've often found acromobacter to be pretty frustrating to treat, often appearing in CF individuals with more advanced lung disease, being associated with an increase in frequency of exacerbations, and what appears to be a decrease in the response to IV antibiotics. Clearly, this is another area that needs more studies, but I think that we're going to find that acromobacter is going to be receiving more and more attention in the upcoming years. All of these new organisms and these concern about new pathogens in one way can be frustrating and concerning. Another way, I think it actually harkens back to some of the success we're having in treatment of CF with extending the lifespan by being more aggressive with IV antibiotics, more aggressive with inhaled antibiotics. Hopefully by paying attention to these microbiologic trends, by developing new therapies, by developing new antibiotics, this will result in continued improvement in the quality and length of the patients we're caring for with cystic fibrosis. Dr. Michael Boyle, Dr. Elliot Dazenbrook from the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Thank you for participating in this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Enjoy it. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME, CNE, and CPE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. Please visit our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, to register for the program. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates its educational activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. 
For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. For pharmacists, this program is approved for 0.5 hour credit or 0.05 CEUs, awarded by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Salve Pharmaceuticals, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted, with all rights reserved, by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.